Inside Fire Johnson, media, please. You feel... Can ahead. we please answer the question that I asked you instead of trying to make Donald Trump feel better here that you're not criticizing him? Well, I don't know why I came here tonight. I got the feeling that something ain't right. I'm so scared in case I fall off my chair. And I'm wondering how I'll get down the stairs. Clowns to the left of me, jokers to the right. Here I am, stuck in the middle with you. From Pacifica Radio, this is the broadcast. As heard on KPFK 90.7 FM in Los Angeles. Elsewhere in California on KFOI Red Bluff Redding, KKRN Round Mountain, KGOE Eureka. In Oregon on KYAQ on the Central Coast, KSO in Cottage Grove, KEPW Eugene. In Lancaster, Pennsylvania, WLRI, Maui, Hawaii, KAKU. In Columbus, Ohio, WGRN, Palinville, New York, WLPP. Grand Rapids, Michigan, WPRR, New Orleans, Louisiana, WHIV, Gallup, New Mexico, KNIZ, in Concord, New Hampshire, on WNHN, Fayetteville, Arkansas, KPSQ, Seattle, Washington, KODX, Janesville, Wisconsin, WADR, Minneapolis, St. Paul, AM950, KTNF, and coast to coast and around the globe, streaming on the internets on the Progressive Voices Channel, Netroots Radio, Indie Media Weekly, FYI Nation, NicoleSandler.com, Radio Free Brooklyn, Workforce Rising, Deprogrammed Radio, and Detour Talk. Blanketing the globe five days a week, as usually hosted by Brad Friedman of Bradblog.com. But today, once again, you got me. I'm Nicole Sandler of NicoleSandler.com. That's the home base for The Nicole Sandler Show, which I produce and host Tuesday through Friday each week. Um... You can get it at the website or on the Progressive Voices Network or on wherever you get your usual podcasts. Um, In for Brad and Desi, while they are still dealing with family issues, Brad lost his father a couple of weeks ago, and sadly, it's part of life. They will be back soon. We'll keep the fire burning here for them till they can get back. With a new week comes tons of breaking news. And actually, it never lets up. It's an ongoing tsunami of breaking news stories. So let me start with what greeted us Monday morning, an official statement from the press secretary at the White House. It's dated October 6th, 2019. Quote, today, President Donald J. Trump spoke with President Erdogan of Turkey by telephone. Turkey will soon be moving forward with its long-planned operation into northern Syria. The United States Armed Forces will not support or be involved in the operation, and United States forces, having defeated the ISIS territorial caliphate, will no longer be in the immediate area. The United States government has pressed France, Germany, and other European nations from which many captured ISIS fighters came to take them back but they did not want them and refused. The United States will not hold them for what could be many years and great cost to the United States taxpayer. Turkey will now be responsible for all ISIS fighters in the area captured over the past two years and in the wake of the defeat of the territorial caliphate by the United States. And that's the end of the statement, which makes no sense at all. 
Richard Engel is NBC News' chief foreign correspondent, and he checked in with this report Monday morning. This is a, a major development, and the American people will eventually remove President Trump. But he is president right now, and that has very immediate questions for and concerns for the, the people who live in northern Syria. I'm talking about the, the Kurds. This is a population of U.S. allies, the people who joined with American special operations forces and defeated the ISIS caliphate. They're probably about 50 to 60,000 of the fighters. They live in an area, they control an area of approximately 2 million people. They have been protected by American forces on the ground. Those Americans there have been making sure that the Turks across the border do not come in and invade their enclave. And they fear that if the Turks do that, there will be massive ethnic cleansing. The Americans have now been ordered to stand aside. The Turkish president has said numerous times that he is going to invade. So our allies, who lost 10,000 people fighting against ISIS, who did in fact defeat the ISIS caliphate, now worried because of this decision overnight, this surprise decision, that they will be genocide. I just spoke to a Kurdish official. He said the Americans have betrayed us. They have opened the door for a Turkish massacre. We are no longer able to fight against ISIS. ISIS might return to the region, and the only one responsible, if that happens, will be the Americans. They are the ones responsible for this. So there is a state of absolute uh, concern, panic even, among our very close Mm. Kurdish allies after this overnight surprise decision. And in fact, after a lot of incoming from supposed Trump allies, including Lindsey Graham, I kid you not, they're now trying to take it back, I guess. Because at around two o'clock Monday afternoon, the Department of Defense released a new statement attributable to Assistant to the Secretary of Defense for Public Affairs, Mr. Jonathan Hoffman, whoever that is. And this statement reads, quote, The Department of Defense made clear to Turkey, as did the president, that we do not endorse a Turkish operation in northern Syria. And I'm not going to read the rest of the propaganda to you because you know what they do. This is gaslighting. Donald Trump went on his Twitter tear. He went on and on about giving control to Erdogan and Turkey. And now that some Republicans in the Senate are calling him out for not knowing what the hell he's doing, they're trying to cover for him. Doesn't work that way. And just because Lindsey Graham has been one of his biggest sycophants, I thought I'd share with you a few of the comments he made when he called into Fox and Fiends Monday morning. Would we have defeated ISIS without the Kurds? Uh, The ISIS is not defeated, my friend. The biggest lie being told by the administration that ISIS is defeated. The caliphate destroyed, but there are thousands of fighters over there. And no, the caliphate would not have been destroyed without the Kurds. And I applaud the president for getting the Kurds and the Arabs to do most of the fighting. The casualties destroyed right. the caliphate was very low. We've got less than 1,000 troops now in Syria. Right. But this impulsive decision by the president has undone all the gains we've made, thrown the region into further chaos. Iran is licking their chops. And if I'm an ISIS fighter, I've got a second lease on life. So to those who think ISIS has been defeated, you will soon see. And to Turkey, you've destroyed the relationship, what little you had with the U.S. Congress 
and I will do everything I can to sanction Turkey's military and their economy if they step one foot into Syria. But they are. Well, I hope I'm making myself clear how short-sighted and irresponsible this decision is, in my view. Maybe this is why the DOD tried to clean up what Donald Trump did. None of it makes any sense. The only good news to come out of it is a few more cracks in the Republican Senate wall. Just saying. Trump himself tried to backtrack by, of course, on Twitter again. And this one is just (laughs) completely off the rails. As he wrote, quote, As I have stated strongly before, and just to reiterate, if Turkey does anything that I... In my great and unmatched wisdom, he actually said that, in my great and unmatched wisdom, considered to be off limits, I will totally destroy and obliterate the economy of Turkey I've done before. Stop. Just stop. And sadly, at about 3.20 p.m. Eastern time, the reports have begun pouring in that Turkey has begun bombing northern Syria. Initial reports of a Turkish airstrike on the Kurdish-controlled Samikia border crossing between Syria and Iraq. Multiple airstrikes reported. With all this going on, I thought it would be a good time for a lesson on the U.S. relationship with the Kurds. Stick around. That's coming up next. I'm Nicole Sandler, guest hosting this edition of The Bradcast. Hey, this is Brad. Remember me, the guy who was warning you about Donald Trump from the day he entered the race, when the rest of the U.S. media were telling you his candidacy was a joke, that he'd never win, and that Hillary Clinton had it in the bag. We told you otherwise from the beginning and up until Election Day. Well, we may have been right, but we still don't have corporate or foundational support. We still rely on you to stay on your public airwaves. Please stop by bradblog.com slash donate to support the work that Desi Doyen and I do every day. This country ain't going to save itself, but we can all do it together. That's bradblog.com slash donate. And thank you. Give them money, but are they grateful? No, they're spiteful and they're hateful. So let's surprise them. We'll drop the big one. Pulverize Welcome back to the Bradcast. I'm Nicole Sandler of NicoleSandler.com, still holding down the fort for Brad and Desi. They should be back soon. As I mentioned earlier, the United States began withdrawing American troops from Syria's border with Turkey early Monday after Donald Trump signaled his intent to side with Turkey's despotic leader, Erdogan, over our longtime allies, the Kurds. The madness began oozing from Trump's Twitter account around uh, 7.30, 8 o'clock Monday morning and included childish and decidedly undiplomatic idiocies such as, quote, As I have stated strongly before, and just to reiterate, if Turkey does anything that I, in my great and unmatched wisdom... Consider to be off limits. I will totally destroy and obliterate the economy of Turkey I've done before. They must, with Europe and others, watch over. Dot, 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 dot. The captured ISIS fighters and families. And it goes on like that. 
After taking some heat from a few, uh, I guess, renegade Republicans like, oh, Lindsey Graham. Yeah, Donald Trump tried to backtrack, as usual, trying to have it both ways. What I want to do here is give you the backstory on who the Kurds are. Back in July of 2015, I spoke with a woman named Bayan Sami Abdul Rahman. She is the Kurdistan Regional Representative to the United States. And in this interview, I wanted to suss out what our relationship is. The Kurds are a very misunderstood people, especially here in the U.S., so I thought this would be a good time to replay this interview in which you'll understand, I think, better the relationship the United States and the Kurds have had for many years. Donald Trump is destroying it in, well, a morning's misguided tweet storm, it seems. So, by way of deep background, we go back to July of 2015. I'm so excited for our next guest, and, and I'm honored that she's uh, chosen to speak with us here. Bayan Sami Abdul Rahman, am I pronouncing it correctly? Uh, yes, it's Bayan. Bayan. Okay, yes. uh, you're the Kurdistan Regional Government Representative to the United States. Um, it, you know, I, a lot of people here, unfortunately, we have a, a decent educational system in the U.S., but I think we lack when it comes to geography, world geography. Um, I'll tell you, my daughter I adopted from Kazakhstan, which, as you know, is a huge nation. And so I can't tell you how many people, when they learn she's from Kazakhstan, say, what's that? They, they don't, it's kind of sad and embarrassing. But Kurdistan is even more complicated because Kurdistan isn't isn't a country. You're not a, you're not a nation. You're a, a, a region. Can you explain what Kurdistan is? Yes, sure. Um, well, first of all, I'd like to say it's a great pleasure to be uh, with you today. So thank you for inviting me. Um, Kurdistan is uh, actually divided and a piece of Kurdistan exists in four different countries. Uh, these four countries are Iran, Turkey, Iraq, and Syria. And Kurdistan in this shape was uh, formed uh, just after the First World War. And actually, President Woodrow Wilson, the, the U.S. president at the time, uh, came up with a concept of self-determination, that peoples around the world have the right to determine what state, what nation they want to be part of. Unfortunately, in the post-First World War discussions by the victorious allies, um, Kurdistan lost out. And so instead of having one Kurdish state in the Middle East, the Kurds were divided into these four countries, Iran, Iraq, Turkey, and Syria. So you have Kurdish people like me, I was born in Iraq. My parents uh, were Iraqi Kurds, but my husband is from Kurdistan and Iran. My maternal grandmother was a Kurd from Syria, and I have many relatives who are Kurds in Turkey. So even though we have these borders that divide us, we are all linked by blood. We are linked by blood and belonging. And we all have the same aims and the same customs, the same language, the same aspirations. We are one people. Wow. You know, I'm looking at a map right now, and I have it up on the screen. We, we put this out on YouTube, so uh, people who are listening can see the map as well. 
and the, the, the Kurdistan region is huge. I mean, Kurdistan is larger than, much larger than Syria, one of the nations that it, it, it um, I guess it, it cuts across the uh, very, the top, the northernmost tip of Syria. Um, it's larger than Iraq. Uh, it also, you know, shares a, a, a huge border with Iran and uh, to the north with Turkey. Um, and I know that, for instance, we, we hear a lot about um, Iraqi Kurdistan, or, uh, uh, you know, and, and so the different, you know, the, the countries with which you uh, share some land, uh, the, the, say the Turkish Kurdistan re region, are they uh, subject to different rules than perhaps those who uh, are, are more in the, in the Iranian region? Yes, what's happened is that uh, over the past a uh, hundred years or so since the First World War, uh, since you know there was this new settlement in Europe and then also in the Middle East, um, the Kurds in the four parts of Kurdistan, in those four countries, in a way have lived parallel lives but also have had different experiences. So the Kurds in Turkey for many decades were not allowed to even speak Kurdish, were not allowed to give their children Kurdish names, um, and the state of Turkey denied even the existence of anything called Kurds or Kurdistan. Wow. Fortunately, uh, and, and this was of course extremely destructive of Kurdish society, it tore at the fabric of Kurdish society. Um, but I have to say that over the past decade or 15 years or so, there has been a great deal of progress in Turkey so that now the language is no longer banned. There are even schools that teach Kurdish, not many admittedly. Um, and in the recent elections just a few weeks ago in Turkey, for the first time a Kurdish political party, the HDP, won 13% uh, of the vote. And this is the first time that Turkey has a Kurdish political party with Kurdish members of parliament. There have been Kurdish members of parliament before in Turkey, but they stood as independent uh, candidates. This is the first time that they stood under the umbrella of a Kurdish party. So this is the situation in Turkey. And then, of course, there is the Kurdish organization in Turkey called the PKK, which has engaged in an armed struggle against the Turkish state. In Syria, again, you know, looking back over the past several decades or even a hundred years or so, the Kurds in Syria have been equally badly treated. They have been ignored. Uh, there were even, and there still are today, uh, a few hundred thousand, maybe three or four hundred thousand Kurds in Syria who have no citizenship rights whatsoever. So that means they can't own their own house. They are disqualified from getting government jobs. Um, their children cannot go to university and so on. The number of Kurds in Syria today is about 3 million. The number of Kurds in Turkey is maybe 20 million, maybe 25 million, we don't know. In Iran, there are about 10 or 12 million Kurds. Wow. And Iran also, uh, unfortunately, has had uh, a policy of oppression against the Kurdish people going back in the Shah's time and then again uh, 
under the Islamic Republic as well. Um, so again, the Kurdish people's rights in Iranian Kurdistan are not, are not necessarily recognized. And then coming to Iraq, which is where I'm from, and I represent the Kurdistan region in Iraq in my post in Washington. In Iraq, uh, perhaps uh, your listeners have more information about us than other parts of Kurdistan. Sure. Uh, you know, Iraq was a dictatorship for many years under Saddam Hussein. Uh, but honestly, even before Saddam Hussein, Iraq was never a stable country. There were always rapid and violent changes of government in Iraq. So it's always had a very bloody and violent history. Under Saddam, it, it just reached a peak so that uh, as he strengthened his dictatorship and his grit on the country, Everybody, it didn't matter whether you were Kurdish or Arab, everybody lived in fear, and there was a culture of cruelty, fear, and silence. And then particularly against the Kurds, because we rose up against Saddam repeatedly. We never accepted his rule. Um, he was extremely brutal. He used chemical weapons to bomb civilian communities, and most famously or notoriously, he bombed the, the city of Halabja in 1988 with chemical gas, uh, chemical weapons, and 5,000 people died in that one incident. But he used chemical weapons uh, against about 200 communities, so that's villages, towns, hamlets. And uh, he also engaged in a genocide campaign that he called Anfal, and this was his final solution for the Kurdish people in Iraq. And uh, then fortunately uh, for us, uh, he uh, invaded Kuwait and then, and, and fortunately the United States and the coalition uh, pushed him out of Kuwait and um, we rose up against Saddam Hussein again in early 1991 and he put down this uprising very, very brutally. and. Uh, over 2 million Kurdish people fled to the mountains, and some of your listeners may remember in 1991 the TV images of millions of people on the mountains dying of starvation, dying from the cold. It were just biblical scenes. And again, the United States and Britain and other countries came to our aid. And this was a big turning point in the history of the people of Kurdistan in Iraq. Uh, so there, now you are the representative. Again, we're speaking with Bayan Sami Abdul Rahman, uh, the Kurdistan Regional Government Representative to the U.S. Um, the Kurdistan Iraqi. Are, do you have three other counterparts, or do you represent all of Kurdistan to the U.S.? Kurdistan in Iraq is the only part of Kurdistan that is officially recognized oh. uh, as a region. So we're fortunate that wow. after the liberation, we call it a, a liberation of Iraq in 2003. I realize that there are many people in the United States and other countries who don't see it as a liberation. But you know, if you have lived under a dictatorship who is committing genocide against your people, it feels like a liberation when that dictator wow. is removed. So after the liberation of Iraq, um, we Iraqis, that's the Kurds, Sunnis, Shias, sat down and negotiated a constitution. And in that constitution, the Kurdistan region in Iraq is recognized as a region. 
our regional parliament, our regional president and prime minister, and our representatives abroad, so my, my post, um, all of these are recognized. So it is only the Kurdistan region in Iraq that has these positions of president, prime minister, parliament, representatives overseas. The other parts of Kurdistan in Turkey, Iran, Syria, they have party political representatives uh, who might you know, be working in Washington or London or Paris. I see. All right. So um, that's that's the overview of Kurdistan, uh, the history, and where you are today. I'm still stuck on the um, uh, you know the liberation of of, of Iraq. Um, obviously, over here, um, a lot of our finger pointing during we're in a new uh, presidential cycle, and um, you know we're still talking about the flawed decision to invade Iraq. Uh, after all, Iraq never attacked us. They were not a threat to us. We were either lied to or misled or some combination of the two. But for the most part, um, most Americans are, are pretty united in the belief that this was a huge international blunder that cost certainly uh, Americans um, un un unimaginable amounts in, in lives and treasure. And, you know, and the Iraqi people as well. But are you guys, if, you know, if we could go back uh, 15 years or so, would you prefer that uh, we did come in and, and get rid of uh, Saddam or uh, prefer that we would have left you guys alone? Well, first, I, I do recognize um, and I have heard those points of view many times and I respect the point of view that uh, the, the intervention in Iraq or the liberation of Iraq should not have happened and it was a mistake. And also, I should express our gratitude to all of the Americans who fought in Iraq and particularly to those who lost their lives or who were injured. Um, I have always felt that for the families of those soldiers who lost their lives in Iraq, it must be so disheartening to constantly hear that the intervention was a disaster, it was a failure, that Iraq is a failure. Well, there is one corner of Iraq, the Kurdistan region in Iraq, which is successful. We mm. do have a democracy. We do have, well, we had a prospering economy until ISIS came. And we are grateful to the United States and we appreciate the sacrifice, both in blood and treasure, as you put it, that the United States has made. And, and I do want to genuinely thank the people and the government and the Congress of the United States for everything that has been done for the people of Iraq and particularly for the people of Kurdistan. Wow. You what may... I would say, okay. yes. Yeah, I was going to say, you may very well be the first person to have said that. <laughs> I'm sure I'm not the first Kurdish person okay. to have said that, but, and it is genuinely felt. Mm -hmm. it, it is genuinely felt because, as I said earlier, in 1991, when the United States and, and the other countries came to our aid, because Saddam was again attacking us and millions of people went to the mountains and they were dying. They were dying by the thousands from the elements, from starvation, from cold. Um, the United States and Britain and other countries created a safe haven uh, so that people could return to their homes and then they created and implemented a no-fly zone over Kurdistan and this enabled us 
to have our first ever elections in Kurdistan that then led to the creation of our parliament, our government, and all of the institutions that we have today. And again in 2003, this was another turning point at which uh, the United States intervened in Iraq. And for us in Kurdistan, it, it gave us another break. And over the next decade, 2003 to 2013, we were able to build our economy. We were able to open our doors to the international community. Because don't forget, whenever there's a dictatorship, the doors are closed. Dictators do not want you to travel. They do not want foreigners to come in either. So just the fact that people could breathe, they could travel, foreigners could come and see us, uh, we could do business. All of this opened a new entrepreneurial spirit in Kurdistan. and, And we have really done our best to build our society. Going back to your point about was it a liberation or was it an invasion or was it a mistake, in my opinion, the liberation was correct. It was right to remove a dictator who not only terrorized and murdered his own people, but he caused instability around the Middle East and he did harm U.S. interests. However, that doesn't mean that everything went perfectly, that everything went smoothly after the liberation. Certainly, there were many mistakes after the liberation of Iraq, and we all recognize that. But I think it's important that his own people, but he caused instability around the Middle East, and he did harm U.S. interests. However, that doesn't mean that everything went perfectly, that everything went smoothly after the liberation. Certainly there were many mistakes after the liberation of Iraq and we all recognize that. But I think it's important that people like me are given the opportunity, and I thank you for doing that, to to thank the servicemen and women who sacrificed their lives or maybe they're wounded or maybe they're lost friends Mm. uh, in in Iraq. And we appreciate that very much. And we appreciate that they live with that for the rest of their lives. Well, on behalf of them, thank you for that. Uh, again, if you're just joining us, we're speaking with um, the Kurdis, Kurdistan Regional Government Representative to the U.S., Bayan Sami Abdul Rahman. Um, you're based in Washington, D.C. Uh, I'm sure you split your time. But, um, uh, you know, I, I so appreciate the the you know the history there i'm i'm learning so much from you so now after uh, saddam is toppled um you know uh, the the uh, american forces were training the iraqi army there was a, a f- um uh what what is it a, a status of forces agreement made by george w bush uh, with with the uh, iraqi government before bush left office that had us withdrawing our troops uh, uh from Iraq over a certain amount of time, and so uh, President Obama followed through on that agreement. And now, um, once we're gone, it, it seems like everything kind of fell apart. Um, a lot of blame is being pointed at Obama for following through on that status of forces agreement and and withdrawing the troops per the schedule that was agreed upon. Um, and, uh, you know, the political divide over here. So the Republicans are, are saying it's Obama's fault. The, the rise of ISIS is President Obama's fault because we no longer had this robust military presence over there. Obviously, the Iraqi army had troubles before we got there and had troubles after we got there. We're seeing um, two groups, really, in your region, 
stepping up uh, to fight against ISIS. One is, uh, you know, shockingly enough for many of us over here, Iran. The other are the Kurds. Um, how do you, do you, uh, does Kurdistan have its own army? I mean, you're apart and separate from Iraq, from the other nations? We have uh, our own army, and uh, we call our soldiers Peshmerga, and I think I'm, I'm so I happy. I know that, that name. Yes, okay. and I'm so happy that so many Americans use the word Peshmerga yeah. to describe our, our fighters. But Peshmerga for us means soldier, oh. and it literally means those who face death. Wow. Um, and so our Peshmerga are actually... Uh, according to the Iraqi constitution, part of Iraq's defense mechanism or defense system. So with the Peshmerga really doing the heavy lifting over there, because they are, uh, Iraq, I don't know what's going on there. It seems like uh, all the weapons we left behind for the Iraqi army has fallen into the hands of ISIS. Um, There have been a lot of calls for Kurdistan to become its own independent state. Um, Certainly, I know you'd be a much better ally of the United States than any other player in the region. Uh, What's stopping Kurdistan from becoming an independent state? How how would that happen? (laughs) I think that's a question that every Kurd (laughs) asks themselves (laughs) every day. Um, Honestly, uh, every Kurd that I know uh, wants an independent Kurdistan in their in their heart. Mm-hmm. Of course, the political realities uh, sometimes dictate something else. What we have said in Kurdistan and Iraq is that we will hold a referendum within the next year or two. Um, there isn't a specific time frame right now, but in the foreseeable future, we will have a referendum so that all Iraqi Kurds can vote on the question, do you want Kurdistan in Iraq to be an independent state? And I can guarantee you the answer will be a resounding yes. And then our leadership will have the mandate from the public to go about achieving that independence. Now, in an ideal world, (coughs) I'm very sorry. In an ideal world, we would achieve independence in a peaceful manner. We want to be able to speak to our friends and and colleagues in Baghdad and explain to them that from a Kurdish point of view, Baghdad or Iraq rather just doesn't work for us. And I can come to that in a moment. And that the people of Kurdistan have expressed their will for an independent state. And I believe that over the past decade, because Kurdistan region has functioned as as a a prosperous, vibrant region because we've had democratic elections, we have a very vibrant parliament, a very argumentative parliament. And so I think we have shown that we can function as an entity. We have oil that we can export. We are building other industries in Kurdistan. So I hope that over that time, and and I believe that we have, We have shown to many friends in the neighborhood and also in the international community that we 
we can function as an independent state. It doesn't mean that everything will be smooth and perfect, but certainly being part of Iraq is not smooth and perfect. No. And, and uh, you know, the, the, the speculation, uh, certainly over here, is that um, Iraq as a nation is faltering. And that, you know, for instance, the, the, you, you talked about the borders being drawn after World War One. They were drawn kind of haphazardly. And, and there are those who are saying that, you know, the, that the nation of Iraq may not survive and that perhaps Iraq would be split up Kurdistan would become its own nation and maybe the nation of Iraq would disappear. Well, everything is possible and yeah. borders are not sacred. No. Uh, so I, I think, um, and particularly with all this volatility and instability that we see across the Middle East today, not just in Iraq, but if you look at, you have Iraq, you have uh, the crisis in Syria, yes. you have a war in Yemen, you have Libya disintegrating, those terrorist attacks uh, in, in Tunisia. Yes. Really, the, there's a sort of a, a, a wave of instability and, and turbulence that is going through the Middle East. And at the heart of much of this, not all of it, but at the heart of much of this, is the Shia-Sunni rivalry, which goes back centuries right. and has not been solved over centuries and I don't think will be solved in the near future either. So much of this is really beyond what we Kurds or Iraqis might plan or might want. A lot of it is just even bigger and wider than that. But, you know, I would argue that we in Kurdistan have proven ourselves to be a reliable partner to the United States. We uh, are building a democracy. We have religious freedom in Kurdistan. Excuse me. We have religious freedom in Kurdistan. We have so many minorities, the Yazidis, the Christians, right. Shabaks, Kakais, others uh, coming and sheltering in Kurdistan because they've had to flee from ISIS. Mm. We have all of this. And uh, we believe that Kurdistan can be a strategic partner for the United States, a stable and still point in this very, very volatile Middle East. And I think the United States needs partners like oh, that. Yes. And we, of course, also need partners like the United States to, to be with us. Speaking of partners, you know, I, I sometimes, uh, well, uh, politics and war can make strange bedfellows. Uh, I mentioned earlier that, uh, again, the, the Kurds and the Iranians are the two uh, areas in your neighborhood that are really stepping up uh, to battle ISIS. I mean, I learned today, astoundingly, that Saudi Arabia is you know, building a fence, a wall around the nation. That's brilliant. They sound like a, our own Republicans here. Um, the, the, um, what is, I mean, what is the relationship between Kurdistan and Iran? Well, Kurdistan region, uh, uh, po our policy, Kurdistan region's policy is to have good relations with all of our neighbors. Mm. And, what you know, a concept. Iran, <laughs> <laughs> yes. And especially when you're a region, you're not mm -hmm. even a sovereign state, you right. don't have much choice. Iran is a, is a powerful neighbor. It's a player, not just in the Middle East, but even on the international stage. Iran has to be taken account of. So from our perspective, we need to have good relations with Iran. 
and uh, we ch- we do a lot of trade with Iran in in sort of for example food and agriculture and that sort of thing. Um, and in the early days when ISIS, uh, you know, started to attack the Kurdistan region last summer, it was Iran that came to our help before anybody else. Wow. And this was in the very very early days when. We had no idea if anybody would help us. And, you know, when you're in that situation, you'll take the help wherever it comes from. Sure. Um, fortunately, President Obama did order airstrikes, and this was a game changer. It gave every Kurd the confidence that the United States has our backs. And, uh, we, of course, we were taken by surprise by ISIS. But we regrouped, and our Peshmerga have, you know, been taking back territory from ISIS. We have taken back about 20,000 square kilometers, and any part of Iraq that is considered Kurdish is now under Kurdish control, and ISIS wow. has been pushed out. Wow. So we were able to just, you know, with with knowing that we have U.S. support and the airstrikes are extremely effective, the um, the support that we have from the U.S. advisors on the ground has been very, very helpful. Um, the United States and the coalition have been sending weapons to the Peshmerga as well, not as much as we would like, not in the quality or quantity that we would like, uh, but nevertheless, the weapons have been coming, and again, they've been an instrumental in enabling our Peshmerga, who are still, frankly, outgunned by ISIS, but, you know, our Peshmerga have a cause to fight for, and they fight, and we've been very effective against ISIS and have pushed them back. That's that's incredible, and that's so good to hear. Uh, you know, now we need to get that on all fronts. Um, I know we're running short on time. I'd be remiss if I didn't ask you in the wake of the recent news, um, and I know that, uh, that uh, obviously, Kurdistan was not involved in this uh, negotiation for the Iranian nuclear deal. But as a neighbor and an ally of the United States, I'm curious to know uh, if you have any thoughts on what happened this week. It's a difficult question to answer because there are so many unknowns. Mm. And um, I think a deal uh, is better than no deal. Uh, however, whether there was an agreement or not, what really concerns us is that the Middle East is heading for an arms race, mm. even bigger than any arms race we've seen previously in the region. Um, you know, the Gulf countries are extremely concerned about Iran's nuclear program, and so uh, I think this agreement, if uh, it really is based on verification, as President Obama has said, uh, then that would provide reassurance to the United States and to the Gulf countries in the Middle East. And for the Iranians, uh, it, it allows them the breathing space because the sanctions will be lifted. So in a way, it, it, it reads as a win-win uh, situation. But I think the concern for all of us in the Middle East is that really the Middle East is generally heading for an arms race. And this is already an area that is extremely volatile and that has to concern all of us. So going forward, uh, again, uh, uh, Bayan Sami Abdul Rahman, uh, what, what can we do as, as allies, as neighbors? What would you like the average American to know and, um, and, and possibly to take action on going forward? 
Well, one area of immediate action is uh, to help us with a humanitarian crisis. Kurdistan region's uh, population is about 5.2 million. We have taken in about 1.8 million displaced people from Iraq and refugees from Syria. So we have had a huge jump in our population in a very short period of time. And many of these refugees are, sleep, uh, are, are living in camps, but many others are sleeping rough in half-finished buildings, in uh, construction sites, on the roadside, in forests. Um, the United Nations is, of course, helping us with the refugees, but the scale of the problem is just so vast that we, we can't cope, and the UN is saying that it's short of money. So any assistance that your listeners or the people of the United States can give us through their churches, through charities, anything. I mean, the refugees need everything. They need blankets. They need uh boots uh, to manage winter, um, they need uh, books for their children, they need health care, so any kind of assistance on the humanitarian front would be uh, very, very much appreciated and would make a difference to people's lives. All right. Uh, uh, Bayan Asami Abdul Rahman, the, uh, uh, the, Kyrgyzstan, the Kurdistan representative to the United States. Almost, I almost got through without saying Kyrgyzstan, and uh, there I blew it at the end. Um, it's so nice talking with you. I'm, I'm uh, honored that you. you came on this show. I so appreciate it. I've, you've um, opened my mind <laughs> in, in great ways. I mean, it, a lot of stuff that I did not know, I'm sure some of our listeners didn't know either. So I, I thank you, I, I, and, I, and I hope we can talk again. Thank you very much. I've really enjoyed talking to you. Me as well. All right. Take care. Thank you, Nicole. Take thank care. you. Bye-bye. That is Bayan Sami Rahman in an interview recorded in 2015, about four years ago. She is still the Kurdistan Regional Government Representative to the United States and in leadership of the Kurdistan Democratic Party. As of press time, she had not yet tweeted anything about Trump's decision to, well, abandon our allies, the Kurds, in Syria. But you can follow her on Twitter at Bayan Rahman, B-A-Y-A-N-R-A-H-M-A-N. All right. I know there's a lot going on in our world, but the corporate media has done a grave disservice by completely ignoring the fact that somewhere around 50,000 General Motors workers are still on strike. We'll bring you the latest when we speak with Mike Elk of Payday Report next. I'm Nicole Sandler on the broadcast. Five major corporations now own over 80% of all media in the United States, but they don't control us. The Bradcast and the Green News Report are 100% independent, 100% listener-supported. But we can't do it alone. We need you. Your support helps us bring real facts to listeners at independent stations across the country. You can make a real difference by supporting independent media. This country ain't going to save itself, but we can all do it together. Join us at bradblog.com slash donate. That's bradblog.com slash donate. And thanks.
We're back. Nicole Sandler filling in for Brad and Desi on the Bradcast. And back on the line with us is Mike Elk. He's the uh, guy behind PaydayReport.com. Mike Elk reports on labor matters. We spoke with him just a few weeks ago when the GM strike began. And I I hate to say it, Mike, but in the last, it's been about three weeks. And um, if all you did was watch the corporate media, whether it be TV news or, or newspapers, um, you probably wouldn't even know that there was a strike going on. Yeah, you know, while news outlets have plenty of money to camp reporters out in Iowa and other really battleground states months in advance mm-hmm. um, to write pretty much meaningless coverage that's yep. identical, you know, General Motors is trying to bust the UAW here and nobody's complaining about it in public. It's you know, amazing. The media is really letting them get away with it. Right. Now, you at, at Payday Report, you are reader-supported. So I know you were out as the strike began. You were out on the road covering a number of different uh, strikes, a different facility striking. Um, then I guess you had to come back and, and uh, do some writing and, uh, and more fundraising. Uh, are you back out on the road again, or are you still waiting to go back out? Well, we're back out on the road now. We thought maybe the strike would end. We'll see how long we can stay out here. I mean, it depends on how much money we can bring in from our readers. So if folks want to, uh, you know, go to our website and support us, they certainly can uh, and be much appreciated. Uh, you know, we've been able to do a lot of unique reporting that nobody else has done. You know, we did a story about how a lot of auto workers said they were inspired by striking teachers. Mm-hmm. Uh, we did another story today about how GM tries to pit younger workers versus older workers. Um, you know, we're pushing, we're pushing, we're pulling. And, uh, you know, it's tough. Uh, when, you know, there's not the kind of support that there should be for this type of reporting. It it is really sad. I'm looking at paydayreport.com right now. Um, First of all, I love that Zach Roberts is your video guy. I've known Zach for years. Of course, our listeners know him because he's worked with Greg Pallas forever and um, our our pals up in Alaska, too, with Mudflats and and Shannon Moore. So Zach does great work, so I'm glad you guys uh, are working together. Um, Tell us about, you you mentioned uh, the UAW. A lot of the UAW strikers are saying they were inspired by the teachers. A post you put up on Sunday, um, based in Ohio, says uh, Randy Weingarten of, of the American Federation of Teachers was out walking the walk, too, huh? Yeah, I was out with Randy uh, last week walking the picket line in uh, Ohio, and this was a situation where striking auto workers had actually helped support a strike of nearby teachers at a charter school less than a mile down the road from where their plant was. And, you know, a lot of strikers I talked to talked about the inspiration of seeing those teachers go out. So it has had a big effect, a much bigger effect uh, than people realize and, and will continue to have a big effect. Now, since we last spoke, when, when, we, when we spoke uh, originally, right, when the strike was uh, beginning, um, the big news story was how General Motors pulled health insurance coverage from most of the strikers. Uh, you spoke with a, a couple of people who were really impacted by this. One man, in particular, his daughter, her cancer treatments were, were, were canceled. Um, did I read correctly that a few days later they reversed their decision? Yeah, um, they certainly um, reversed their decision under a lot of public pressure. They now reinstated the health care. But that goes to show what can happen when there's media attention drawn to, um, you know, this type of thing. And yep. we helped, you know, really break that story at yes, Payday, you, you know, yeah, nationally. Yep. 
Uh, you know, we put up a video that got over, you know, 300,000 views. Wow. Uh, and that goes to show what, what even independent media can do in terms of forcing the mainstream media to cover stories they aren't, because often the mainstream media will, will copy the independent media. Mm-hmm. So did a lot of uh, the, the, the mainstream outlets pick up that story from you guys? Yeah. Yeah. As it should be. Uh, well, they should be out covering it themselves. It, that's the travesty here. Now, did I read something yesterday that GM is now talking about freezing pensions for some of these striking workers? Well, there's talk of that. There's a lot of talk of a lot of different things. It's not really clear what's going on right now. It's clear GM is trying to scare the union. Um, and it's unclear if that will be successful ultimately or not. You know, I thought I read uh, over the weekend that it looked like the strike could be coming to a close. And you, you, you hinted at that when we first got on the line. Um, but now it's, it's something has not gone the right way. What, what's going on? Yeah, I mean, General Motors has refused to make a deal on, um, on you know, job security and bringing in temporary workers. And it's not really clear what's going on at this point. Oh, boy. And again, you guys, when you're out, you're out. Where are you now? We're in Rochester, New York right now in a hotel room. <laughs> we just got done writing a story. <laughs> okay. Um, and and uh, do you see any other media out there? Or are you basically on your own right now? Well, there'd be some local uh, news outlets, particularly Spectrum News. You know, these 24-hour cable news channels are looking for stories to cover. And they'll be out there. But outside of that, not really. Uh, you know, this should be a front-page story, but... You know, I talked to a lot of folks in Rochester that are people that are pretty plugged in. They haven't even heard anything about it. Wow. And how are the striking workers you're talking to holding up? I mean, we're coming up on a month. So um, many of them got to be stretched pretty thin about now, huh? Some of them are. I mean, some of them saved up money, worked overtime and anticipated this. And some of them have spouses that work good money. But a lot of the younger workers, you know, you're talking starting out at GM at $17 an hour. If you're a temp, you're talking $16 an hour. It's tough to save money when you're on there. And these folks are struggling. Hmm. Obviously, the union is helping the strikers. Um, as we know, uh, when when GM canceled their insurance, the union stepped up to pay the COBRA costs, which are pretty expensive. Do they get paid while they're on strike, uh, uh, some kind of a, a subsidy? Well, they get $250 a week Ooh. from the strike fund. Wow. But there's also another emergency fund if people get in trouble on their mortgage. Uh-huh. Okay. Or things like that, so that folks can go to the union and get help. And are the union leaders giving them any any heads up, any any idea of, of how much longer this might go on, or they just don't know? Well, every week I keep hearing it'll be over by next week, and it's wow. not. Wow. So it's clear this is going to be a long, drawn-out strike. Your last piece, the, the, the newest one up at this moment at paydayreport.com, is about pitting older workers against younger workers. What's going on there? Well, what happens is, you know, they, they bring in these temp workers and they say, hey, you know, we'll make you a, a permanent employee after two or three years uh, or a couple of years. And so what happens is these workers just work really hard. They cut corners on safety. They do things that aren't safe. And as a result, uh, you know, it puts older workers who try to do things safely in a tough position hmm. uh, because they're being forced to compete. Right. Oh, I feel I feel for these people. Um, uh, the, the, are, are any of the presidential candidates talking about this, talking about the strike in, in, in regards to labor? Well, a lot of uh, presidential candidates have gone out to the picket lines and, and made statements and done various things. 
Uh, and obviously, you know, this has helped boost uh, the strike at a time when the media is really not paying attention. Um, so that's been an interesting effect to really see that in 2020, candidates are willing to walk picket lines. Um, I remember in 2014, I was at Politico. I was writing with Maggie Haberman at the time, mm-hmm. famous New York Times reporter. Mm-hmm. And I remember her arguing with me, oh, they're not going to require candidates to walk picket lines in 2016, but here we are. Oh, here we are. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, okay. Well, I, I hope more of them show up. I hope I hope the, the the corporate media picks up on the story. I hope people come to paydayreport.com and um, help support you guys so you can keep doing this work. Because again, the the corporate mainstream media is really failing us on this. We have a major strike, <laughs> a, a, a GM strike in this country, and you can watch any network newscast and not see one word about it. Um, obviously, yep. there's a problem there. So, Mike Elk, thank you for the work you're doing. People can follow you on Twitter at Mike Elk and, again, find you at paydayreport.com. Anything else you want to let our listeners know? No, that's it. That's about it. All right. Thank you, Mike, and, and keep up the good work. Thanks for covering this for us. Thanks for having me on. And with that, we come to the end of another edition of The Bradcast. Once again, Brad and Desi are on the final home stretch. They will be back soon. Hopefully on the next edition I'll have a better time frame for you than just soon. In the meantime, thank you for listening. Again, I'm Nicole Sandler from NicoleSandler.com, filling in for Brad and Desi on the broadcast. Until next time, good luck, world. <laughs>